So research shows about the World Cancer Research data shows that about 42% of all cancers are preventable. And yes. the no, more we know about the links between diet and lifestyle cancer, the more recommendations we can share. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well podcast with your host, Sarah Ann Macklin, and brought to you by the not-for-profit mental health organization, The Be Well Collective. This podcast aims to bring you nutritional insights and mental health awareness through people's own personal journeys and health professionals' evidence-based advice to guide you on your own journey. In today's episode, I discuss a very important topic, breast cancer. Breast cancer is the leading cause of cancer for women in the UK. And 23% of breast cancer is preventable. In this episode, we look at all the different risk factors and a large one being nutrition. Alongside this, we also discuss the health inequalities that have been highlighted even more this year due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And also, where did diet culture come from? Has diet culture only been around for the last few years? Well, interestingly enough, it dates all the way back to the 12th century. And racism has actually shaped our diet culture to what it is today. To help me discuss these really important topics, I have Toral Shah, a nutritional scientist, functional medical practitioner, food and health writer, as well as the founder of The Urban Kitchen. Toral, welcome to Live Well, Be Well. How are you today? I'm good, thank you very much. I'm slightly over lockdown, but oh god, yes, lockdown too. Lockdown too. <laughs> lockdown too. <laughs> well, I'd love you to explain to all my listeners um, all about your journey um, and where you are today in your career. And what and we're going to be speaking about cancer, breast cancer, and diet. Um, but I'd love you to explain to all my listeners a little bit about your journey getting to where you are. Thank you. So firstly, I'm a nutritional scientist, functional medicine practitioner and health and food writer. And if you haven't realized, I'm absolutely passionate about cancer and how we can prevent cancer. And this journey actually started such a long time ago. I was a very precocious 11 year old and who read well above her age level. And I read this book about a cancer surgeon who um, operated on teenagers and young people, but yet had a child who ended up having leukemia and sadly passed away. And I decided in that moment of being 11 and knowing nothing, that I was going to be a cancer surgeon or work in cancer somehow. And and, and, and obviously in my naive little way, I thought I was going to cure cancer. Obviously I've realized that's not possible. Um, so the pathway for me was very clear. I went to medical school um, and you know was getting on with that. And halfway through that, my mother had breast cancer. Now, this is back in 1999. This kind of shows my age. But my mum, in those days, we didn't talk much about nutrition and lifestyle and recovery. Mm. There was definitely some evidence and science coming out because there was, a, you know, the nurses' health study was already happening. The EPIC study was already happening. But we did have clear guidelines. And World Cancer Research Fund, which I'll be quoting later on, mm-hmm. had started their research 
five or so years previous to that, but they hadn't had as much data out and it wasn't necessarily something that people talked about. But I started sort of researching this and thinking, how can I help my mum to recover from having a mastectomy and also from you know, recovery and from, to prevent reoccurrence? My mum was 49, so that's relatively young in breast cancer terms. Um, and my mum was really active. She ate, she ate really well. She exercised a lot. She was in, you know, very slim, all of those things, but yet, you know, she had breast cancer. And we do have a familial link, but I still want to understand how nutrition and lifestyle could make a difference. So I started investigating, and I realized there wasn't much there. It was always in the dusty part of the university <laughs> library. This is before everything was online. Mm-hmm. And I kept finding things, like taking things to my mom's oncologist, who basically either laughed at me or just became very kind of cross with me. So I realized there was something going on. Um, and I just felt very disillusioned by understanding more about what the oncology job was i hadn't realized because i'd only done the preclinical part of the medical school before that and i didn't realize that you know you have to be able to be able to disassociate yourself a little bit from patients and still keep the human touch but not get really involved and i'm very empathetic and i just know that i get overly involved with people and i realize it's probably not the right job for me and i also have had this new found love of nutrition already having found the you know love of food Mm. so had a bit of a break worked in research for a while cancer research for a while had a break and then uh, went back and did a master's in nutritional medicine so this was back in 2004 before nutrition became cool and trendy Mm um and everyone laughed at me like what are you doing you could be a doctor yet you're going off to do this nutrition stuff and it's taken a while I'm gonna be honest like it's really only in 2013 14 15 that people start to really understand how nutrition and lifestyle can make a huge impact in your well-being and it became not just a specialist thing but something that everyone's been you know interested in and yet still doctors are not being taught anything about nutrition and lifestyle really in medical Mm. school so it's they don't have the information to give so again there's lots of people who are not really sharing about how these small changes can make a massive impact to particularly with cancer risk and uh, prevention um, and reducing risk so that's kind of where I got to so I um, had to then find a way of bringing people to me because people didn't want to talk about nutrition so how I used to do is reel them in with food and then throw all this nutrition information to them and it and it, you know, it was very successful for a while but obviously now I don't have to do that because everyone's interested in nutrition and, and particularly kind of the more holistic part of medicine and how do we connect all the different spheres whether it's nutrition exercise stress relief mental health sleep you know all of these things are all interconnected mm. so that's something that I'm very passionate about um and working with a whole lot of organizations and charities to kind of share how people can make these changes and make them practical and fun and interesting and part of their day-to-day life. That's fantastic. I mean, the fact that you also are so interested in the multifaceted view of health and you make it so digestible. I mean, we'll talk about more of this later, but your website, you know, from actually implementing the cooking skills, which are really important, um, and to making it easy to understand. I think that's the, the biggest thing that you know, I try to do in this podcast when I speak to experts is actually taking away simplified information that people can implement into their life. And sometimes nutrition can just feel like a minefield. I feel like the more I learn about nutrition, the less I actually know. Um, So, I mean, all the work that you're doing is amazing and it all comes from the age of 11, which is amazing. I don't think I've ever known anyone to have their career path at that age of knowing what they wanted to do. So... It has gone round in circles. It yeah. wasn't a direct path. I mean, I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't know how I was necessarily going to get there. And how I got, got there, there is not how I... 
but it's not how I imagined it. You yeah. Know? And I think we have to remember that. So there's a beautiful quote. Life only makes sense when you look at it backwards, but you have to live it going forwards. Oh, that's a fantastic quote. I that's... can't remember who it's by. <laughs> I mean, well, okay, so back to breast cancer. Can we talk yes. about... Um, so you talked then really, you spoke about kind of, you know, how we can maybe modify our risks towards getting breast cancer. What are the modifiable risks and the non-modifiable risks when looking at breast cancer? So when looking at breast cancer, modifiable risks. So the non, let's start with the non-modifiable because I think that that's quicker. So non-modifiable yeah. is things like your age. You can't change your age. You can't mm-hmm. change your gender internally. Mm-hmm. Um, you, uh, you can't change your ethnicity. You can't change your family history. You can't change your genetics. Those are the things that we can't change. Mm-hmm. Now, what? And also, you can't change infection. Well, you can prevent it, but there's certain things that you know you may not be able to change. Yeah. Um, and then, if we look at the modifiable risks, it's all of these other things. So, smoking, we know, is number one. Alcohol intake, nutrition, and diet. So, particularly fiber intake. You know, to getting more specific to that, alcohol content we've already talked about. Um, and our body weight so obesity and being overweight increases your risk of breast cancer mm-hmm. so that's something to look at um and those are kind of the main modifiable risks i mean there will be more things that we will probably learn going forward i mean so going back to the non modifiable risks one of the things that we know which is really strange which we haven't figured out is the taller you are the more your risk increases but obviously you can't change your height yeah no you can't so what so from your from working in cancer research and obviously all the the research that you've done what are the main determinants of why breast cancer can occur is it predominantly your genetics or not or is that not one of the leading traits so we're actually still if you're thinking about genetics we have to go deeper Mm -hmm. um and look at epigenetics epigenetics is really the study of how our environment um impacts our genes and switches genes on off but let's rewind from that most cases of what people think are genetic as far as cancer, or whether they're hereditary or familial, most cases of breast cancer, at least 80% of breast cancer cases are not hereditary or familial. It's a random case of breast cancer. 5%, roughly about 5%, is definitely related to BRCA1 or 2 genes. BRCA1 or 2 genes, um, if you inherit those from your family, from your parents, then you're much more likely, up to 80% more likely to have breast cancer and then some other associated cancers. Mm-hmm. And then there's this middle group of 15% where we're not quite sure, but there is definitely a family link, um, but we're not sure. So I'll give you an example. In fact, I'm going to give you my own family, for example. <laughs> so... My mother's had breast cancer, which I've already shared, but my aunt has had breast cancer. Um, my aunt lives in Canada. And then my mum's still got three other sisters. None of them have had breast cancer. But my mum's got loads of cousins who have had breast cancer. Everybody's had exactly the same type of breast cancer. Right hand, right-sided, into you know, ductal carcinoma. Mm-hmm. Now, I've actually had breast cancer too. And I had breast cancer when I was 29, so younger than most people. And yet I have these BRCA1 or 2 genes and now they've discovered a few more genes, PALB2, TP53. I don't have any of these gene mutations. Yet there is a familial link. And then if you ask us, there is a genetic link somewhere. There's some sort of link that's linking all of Like given there's 13 people in my family who've had breast cancer, mm-hmm. there is obviously clearly some link. It's just that where does that link come from? Is that from because we've got a big gene mutation or is it because we've got lots of little mutations and then the environment and then the lifestyle and then the fact that we, you know, we're all Indian people that live in 
countries where where there's more of a vitamin D deficiency. So, for example, everybody that's had breast cancer in our family lives in the UK, Canada, America. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yet anyone that lives in Africa or India or anywhere else, Hong Kong, no breast cancer. So it's that's wow. you know, there's so many things to think about when you think about genetic aspects of cancer. Hugely. And is there a big vitamin D link with breast cancer? So we're starting to understand there's a huge vitamin D link with all aspects of health. But yes. we know that with... Um, with all cancer does increase your um, risk we're starting to see that potentially whether it's directly to your breast cancer or just all cancers you know we need to learn more but there's definitely if you are diagnosed with cancer you're very likely to be deficient in vitamin d wow so does that then go down to because we know vitamin d is super important for our immune system yes and one of the things that our immune system does is cancer surveillance so we've got some of our uh, white blood cells going around and some of our other cells going around and kind of detecting if there are any cells growing out of control and they normally find them and either gobble them up by phagocytosis or mm-hmm. they um attach something and you know there's programmed cell death now because cancer cells are just our own cells growing out of control they're not anything different they're not like an external body Mm. so our body needs to be able to recognize them but then somewhere along the line and and there's constantly tumors being formed in our body in everybody or cells growing out of control rather not tumors and our body finds them and kills those cells but with cancer what's happening is and with tumors particularly our our body's not able to do that so Mm. we have to understand like we're still looking at really deeply like we, we know how important vitamin d is but we don't know exact maybe the mechanisms of why it's so important we know some of the mechanism how the immune system like tracks cells but what we do know is that if we supplement vitamin d it does help people that's really interesting vitamin d is a hot topic this year isn't it and um yeah (laughs) yeah i've read a lot about the recent studies of vitamin d but i haven't read about the breast cancer link and that's really interesting um so going to so obviously that's maybe really important for people to know about checking their vitamin d status not only for obviously all the other areas of vitamin d which is linked to which largely is immunity um but also you know checking your vitamin d status now is also really important and maybe looking at supplement as well if you're in the uk um but going back to nutrition because obviously we can't get enough vitamin d within our diet food wise what are the other um what's the other advice that you would give to people to help with um supporting um modified risk with breast cancer is there any kind of top foods um that could help support the reduction of the risk so before we talk about that let's look at the research the research shows about the world cancer research data shows that about 42% of all cancer are preventable. And yes. the no, more we know about the links between diet, lifestyle, and cancer, the more recommendations we can share. Yeah. So and 23% of breast cancer as well, which is really large. Yeah, exactly. So it's so what can we do then? So what is it? So I think partly, um, if we think about recommendations, we have to look at cancer-fighting foods. Mm-hmm. Um, if we look at whole food plant-based diets, so the, the two diets that really come to mind um, as being really cancer, kind of reducing risk of cancer are the Japanese and Mediterranean diet. And someone coined this beautiful phrase, the Mediterranean diet. But basically, these diets, which are super protective of cancer, they have whole plants and which are minimally processed. Plants are full of phytochemicals, phytonutrients, and polyphenic compounds. Um, these, that, those are things that give plants and you know vegetables and fruits their bright colours, and they're very potent anti-cancer 
anti-cancer properties Mm -hmm. they also work in synergy so you can't just supplement with them you've got to eat these foods and these different colored foods and together you can't just be supplementing and Mm -hmm. also the fiber we know the fiber is really important part of it so yes could you you explain why that's important the fiber part yeah absolutely so with with uh fiber it's there's so many different aspects of it um one is we know that there's a starting to be a link between understanding the link between gut health and our immune system and cancer Mm -hmm. so a lot of our immune system actually comes from having beneficial bacteria within our gut so that's Mm -hmm. what our gut microbiome is not just bacteria but there's fungi viruses all sorts of other things when we have a, a good optimal um gut microbiome we have lots of beneficial bacteria and these beneficial bacteria fulfill some of our immune system roles so they train our immune system they make some of the molecules need they'd have the gut brain access all sorts of things so what we're trying to understand is that when we're feeding ourselves and then effectively our gut microbiome with all these fiber rich foods so whether that's vegetables or fruits whole grains legumes um, nuts seeds all of these things it's all full of different types of fiber and just have we have our favorite foods our beneficial bacteria have their favorite foods and they all have their favorite type of fiber there's over a thousand different types of fiber and so we decided to understand that supporting the gut microbiome helps to optimize our um, immune health and because we can't digest some of our own foods we need these beneficial bacteria to digest um, fiber and other so we actually gain the nutrients from them that's why it becomes really important now when you look at again fiber is not something you can necessarily supplement i know you can have fiber gel and stuff like that mm. but really it's just about eating fruit and vegetables and whole grains and nuts seeds legumes mm-hmm. um was that was that enough of an answer for you yes no it definitely was it really was i also think you know generally in the uk we are not meeting our 30 grams a day target at oh, all no, we think we're 17 grams. yeah 17, 18 grams. Really, and actually, really women eat more than men. So one of the most important things we can eat to prevent cancers, not just breast cancer, is oily fish um, and anything rich in omega-3 fatty acids too. So that becomes an important part of our diet. Having more monounsaturated fats and olive oil and nuts and seeds, again, all of this is protective um, for cancer in general. Um the other thing would be reducing alcohol. Sadly, with breast cancer, no alcohol is the best. I mm-hmm. mean, not saying that you shouldn't drink alcohol, but really that is the, we know that the risk is so tightly associated in the way that drinking any amount of alcohol will increase your risk of breast cancer. So if you don't drink any, then that reduces your risk. So mm-hmm. that's something to remember. Yeah. Dairy. Dairy is an interesting one. Yes, this is one I really wanted to bring up with you. The misconception yeah. of dairy. So some people, when they have breast cancer, will become vegan because there's so much information out there. But actually, if you look at all the studies, and World Cancer Research Fund do a brilliant summary of this on their website, is actually having small amounts of dairy is actually protective against breast cancer. Mm-hmm. It's slightly different from prostate cancer, but we're talking about breast cancer today, and actually it's protective. And is that because we're then getting enough amounts of calcium? Again, we're not entirely sure. But there definitely doesn't seem to be a risk with eating dairy, which increases your breast cancer risk. There's so many components there, isn't it, as well? Because if you're eating live yogurts, like good natural yogurts, also there's a huge link with gut health beneficiary yeah, there also, as well. So, And unpasteurized cheeses. 
Mm-hmm. That's also really good for your gut health too. I think Tim Spector's a real fan of unpasteurized cheese and gut health. He is. We've um, got him on the podcast, season one. <laughs> so I think that these are the things. And then um, red meat. So red meat increases the risk of colon cancer and stuff. Do we understand it um, as much in breast cancer? Not quite yet, but part of it may be because saturated fat can increase your risk of breast cancer particularly if you're overweight or obese mm-hmm. and we know that that's a particular um, important risk factor for breast cancer that if you have more body fat you actually have more estrogen in your system um, because fat can store the estrogen and I'm not going to go into the science of that there's quite a lot mm-hmm. but that is a massive risk so one of the really modifiable risks is looking at your body fat levels and that doesn't mean that you can't be healthy at a high body weight it's just that it's something that you can potentially look at yeah there's a really interesting stat on that actually on the cancer research website which is overweight and obesity is the second biggest cause of cancer and keeping a healthy weight reduces the risk of 13 different types of cancers and breast cancer is one of them so yes and most of the common cancers, actually, like mm. prolonged cancer and stuff, like yeah. prostate cancer too. And you mentioned something really interesting, actually, about the Japanese Mediterranean diet, about being the two the two diets which are associated with better health outcomes. And something that's very linked very heavily in the Japanese diet is soy consumption. And there's a huge myth. I did do a small um, episode on this in episode one, but there's a huge link with soy and breast cancer risk. And a lot of people are then very frightened to consume any type of soy. Um, but actually it comes from the phytoestrogens and the isoflavonoids, which actually we were just talking about, what you were just talking about there, about being actually being protective. So I'd love if you could maybe talk a little bit more about that for anyone that's worried that soy increases their breast cancer risk. So I think we have to rewind and think about the form in which you're eating the soy. Mm-hmm. So with Japanese Asian people or, or Asian people, when they're eating soy, they're eating unprocessed versions of soy. Mm-hmm. So they may be eating tofu, they may be eating tempeh, they may be eating edamame beans, they may be eating uh, miso, which is like fermented soy. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the Western Hemisphere, we are having processed soy. So processed soy in food and weird burgers and milks mm. and all those things. So we have to differentiate between those two. So in the Japanese diet or Asian diet or whatever you want to call it, they're having these unprocessed versions. Also, they're having it from much younger on. They're yeah. having it through puberty. Mm-hmm. And there is there are studies to show that if a girl, a woman has had soy in those formative years of teenage years, that can actually reduce your risk. Now, one of the things that we're starting to understand, we don't understand why why there's a bit of a difference and why diff- people have a different reaction almost maybe to soy, I think, is that we know that, so as you mentioned, that um, the phytoestrogens on soy are different to our female estrogen, but they mm-hmm. do bind to similar binding sites. And, they, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's really important. But a third of women eat a diet that delivers the phytoestrogen typical of an Asian diet only a third of them will be able to process, have the beneficial bacteria in their gut microbiome, and that's called the estrobolo, that can actually process the, est- the phytoestrogens. And those are the people who will find it beneficial. Mm-hmm. And that's where this discrepancy lies, because we don't know really who has these beneficial bacteria which can um, digest and um, detoxify and deconjugate the estrogen from those that don't have it and so for the people that do have it it's they it's these specific gut bacteria can convert the soy isoflavin flavin diazidin 
to the most potent form of equal. And that's where they can potentially have a difference. So this is where the latest research is, and I've written some pieces about this recently. And in fact, I've got a piece to go up on my website soon about uh, breast cancer and soya. Oh, I'll put that um, in the show notes. Yeah. And so this is where it's, there's so much for us to learn still. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and also, like, but personalizing medicine, is, there is no one size fits all. So even if you have mm-hmm. the same type of breast cancer, your bacteria, like, let's just take myself and my mum. We, you know, obviously I grew up with my mum. Mm-hmm. I ate her food. So we ate the food for, you know, first 20 years or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And then, but our gut microbiome could be completely different. And, you know, we make processed cellular in a completely different way. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's really important to actually say that war with the individual because all of the information that you're giving now is so important and I, you know, it's so helpful for people to listen to, but it also won't stop you from getting cancer. And I think there's so many of these times when people can read into information and think, well, I am a vegetarian, but I've got bowel cancer. I don't understand. Or I don't have X, Y, and Z and I'm really healthy and I do all this exercise and I've, you know, somebody in my family never smoked, exercised, ate really well, got lung cancer. And so there are modifiable risks, but it doesn't actually ever stop you from getting the the, It's not prevention, it's reducing risk. And a lot of life's random, really. Yeah. (laughs) It really is. So we have to think about genetics are random and like, you know, there's literally billions of genetic, you know, our our cells are being renewed. We completely have a completely new body Mm -hmm. every seven years. So if we have a completely new body, then obviously everything's changed and, and, and in copying the cells, Thing, yeah, or growing, you know, so there can be, you know, problems with copying the DNA, and that's mm. when you get the uh, risk of cancer. I'd love to ask you because we we're talking about the cells about fasting, because a lot of people start fasting when they have cancer or when they're diagnosed with cancer, or a lot of people claim that it helps. Um, and I'd love to hear your views on on fasting. And if anyone's listening to this as well, I'm sure I know there's a huge rise as well in intermittent fasting at the moment. So I'm going to talk about two things. Firstly, intermittent fasting could be something like um, 5-2 diet or mm-hmm. fasting five days, um, which Walter Longo suggests, five days at the beginning of each month or whatever. Time-restricted eating is not intermittent fasting. It's, it's actually restricting the amount of hours that you eat. So that might be something like um, eating for 14 hours and then oh no, resting for 14 hours and eating for 10 hours or 16, eight, you know, so that's the kind of difference with fasting. Now, there is a lot of people do complete fasting if they're having chemotherapy. They're very, very small studies. So we don't know enough. But anecdotally, and there's a couple of small studies to show that fasting for a couple of days before having chemotherapy and on the day of potentially could help reduce side effects. Is that because your other cells go into senescence? They sort of slow down? Well, we don't know. That's the problem. We just don't have enough data. It's you have to be very careful ethically mm. to, you know, look at that. So that's within treatment time. The other thing is, if people are fasting and they lose body fat because they're overweight, it's going to help them reduce their risk. Yeah. As yeah. we've talked, because we know that obesity and being overweight increases your risk of 13 different cancers. Mm-hmm. So that might be why. We don't know exactly the mechanism, but that could be one of the potential mechanisms of why. Yeah. Um, I think if I would, I would personally... Um, for those who are trying to prevent cancer by fasting, I think there's a lot of other work to do is, you know, what around your habit and your habit change around eating and emotional eating and all those sorts of things. For those who have cancer already and they want to know a little bit more, 
please do this under supervision with a you know, kind of registered dietitian or nutritionist or someone who knows about these things because mm. um, for some people it's going to be appropriate. Some people it might not, it's not going to be appropriate. And also we don't know it. We just don't have the studies to back it up yet. Yeah. So be careful. Yeah. I think yeah, that's the one thing. Make sure you're doing it with somebody who's a registered nutritionist or registered dietitian within cancer care, which is something that's really important. Um, okay. Well, that was really, really, really interesting. I want to kind of move on actually onto the health inequalities in cancer care because we were just speaking I mean it kind of entwines as well with the cancer crisis we're we're dealing with at the same time um, which is at an all-time high in this country at the moment Um, but it's something that is something that I think is really important to speak about Um, and when I was looking on to the World Health Organization, they state that health is a complete physical, mental and social well-being and it's not merely an absence of disease or infirmity. And then they also state that one of the main principles which should be underpinning the healthcare system in the UK is to access and the appropriate delivery of the best quality services available to everyone. However, from watching your fantastic webinar the other day, you highlighted clearly we are not in this state at all and there is a lot of inequality within our healthcare system especially when it comes to cancer care um i'd love for you just to, to to start the conversation on this actually around your the views that you had from working within cancer prevention and actually the stats that were up against so the problems where these root causes lie um and how we can start changing this from the very beginning as somebody walking simply into the gp and feeling that there's no understanding from that person, there's no empathy towards that person, and also the the quite dis- quick disregarding of that person purely because of the colour of their skin. And going back to the World Health Organization, it's also about sustainable changes. They also mm. talk about sustainability, and that's not just from the environmental, but also be able to maintain that for the rest of your life. And that's something I talk about in my other brand, What the Health Events, and we look at how do we sustain good health that works for us each of us individually for the rest of our life and that's that's a kind of sidebar but setting the scene in the uk the demographics of ethnic groups in the uk are 7.5 percent of population are asian identifies asian Mm. 3.3 percent of the population identifies black 2.2 percent of the population identifies mixed and one percent um as other so that's 13 percent describe themselves as the black asian ethnic minorities by 2030, in 10 years' time, that number will have increased to at least 20%. So it will have increased by about 50 or 60% mm. of where people where we are. So that, I think that's where we have to set the scene. Now, the next thing to remember is uh, how, uh, there are now 2.5 million, billion, million people rather living in the UK with cancer. And in 2017... 366,303 cancer of cancer were diagnosed. Mm. That number will be higher for 2018-19, and we don't know about 2020. And you did refer to the cancer crisis, which I'll come back to. At the moment, the statistics lie that one in two people in the UK will be diagnosed with cancer, and that's one in seven people will be diagnosed with breast cancer. So just to set the scene, just so mm-hmm. we know where what, what the soup is that we're swimming in. Yeah. Um, and also 40% of the population within London is from black, Asian, minority. And no, it's actually 53%. Well. Has it? Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah, so 53% of, um, um, in London 
identify as black, Asian, ethnic minorities. So for me, I think let's talk about the health and wellness world. Mm. Why is it that we're only hearing from predominantly white people? Why are we not hearing? The NHS has got more ethnicities working for firstly Chinese and then um, Asian than any other nationality, yet they're underrepresented in in managerial, um, higher consultancy level positions. So Mm -hmm. that's one thing. Um, Secondly, how many many people are talking about health who are from these groups? How many people actually have, have people within their own social circle that are from these groups? I mean, so I could ask you how many people that you're genuinely friends with that you are from who are not white. So I don't know. And myself? Yeah. Uh, probably at oh, over half. I mean, okay, my, well, my board different. is I'm the only white person. So Okay. So that's yeah. quite unusual when you look at the health and wellness industry as a whole. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people you'll see who just don't have any. And I think that's people like you and me. It's great because, we, you know, we're... We're here. I live in Brixton as well. That's where I've lived for 13 years. So yeah, I'm definitely... Yeah, um... it's definitely really important. So I think, and I wasn't having, I wasn't trying to pick up, I was just asking. The point is if you don't have anyone within your, everyone's very same, you're living in an echo chamber. So let me give you some of the stats because let's go back to cancer. So South Asian and black women had much lower breast cancer awareness than white women. Why is that? There's lower awareness of cancer risk factors and health-seeking behaviours. Um, do they know the signs and symptoms? Um, are the cancer services um, pre- you know, show like? Uh, do people know about the cancer services available to them? There's also socioeconomic reasons, education, cultural awareness. There's those things. Um, black, Asian, ethnic minority groups felt like they were treated differently, and I think you alluded to the question about what's what happens when you go to your GP. Yeah. So the statistics are quite stark. And these are, and we can share where all these statistics came from. I have a document. And so if you want to put that in your put show, in notes, show you can, notes, absolutely. Yeah, you can put that because I think it'll be useful for people because I, I found that people don't always quite believe the numbers. Mm. But um, these studies show that 15.8% fewer black patients felt they were seen as soon as necessary by their GP before going to the hospital. And anecdotally, there is a figure that's going around um, that women of colour particularly black women, have to see their GP at least two more times to be referred on for cancer. And I find that really distressing. I think, and I uh, also, a stat that will link with that is that black women have the poorest outcomes with breast cancer survival as well. That is true, but also partly that might be for, because they're diagnosed later, yeah. and maybe at a later stage, but also because they have a higher proportion of triple negative breast cancer. Triple negative breast cancer is cancer which doesn't have the estrogen, progesterone, or Herceptin receptors, so we don't have any targeted treatment for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and why are they at higher risk? That is something that we're trying to understand. There mm-hmm. are some studies which have started which are looking at why black women, and not just in the UK, but in the United States and even in Africa, actually, too, why they're more prone to this type of cancer where we have no receptors that we can treat. Mm-hmm. So that's something to bear in mind, too. Yeah. Um, there's also mistrust as well of the medical system. Yeah. Um. They, there's there's things like Asian patients um felt that le- you know positive about some of the time they had to wait compared to black patients, mm. and you know thirteen point nine percent fewer patients of mixed ethnic background so that the test results were explained to them in a way they understood. So there's so many layers of this and public um, health messaging, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So if we look at screening, mm-hmm. cancer survivors from white communities are more likely to receive follow-up screening than cancer survivors from Black, Asian, ethnic minority communities. 
there's a much lower uptake of NHS breast cancer screening program amongst black African women in the UK. And the uptake of screening invitations is generally lower from brain groups than people in the white population. And that, we have to, under, to uncover why is that? And I'll tell you. Again, if we look at treatment, um, participants in cancer, you know, clinical cancer trials have better outcomes than are reported, but people from black Asian ethnic minority groups are less likely to participate. What are the barriers to process? Um, participation, cultural fears, factors, stigma, you know, stigmas of having cancer. We don't talk about cancer. Traditionally, people in many communities do not talk about cancer. And I'll mm. tell you a story, just because I think it's good to illustrate the human aspect of Context, this. So yeah. I am obviously from a family that's, you know, my mom's educated, my mom works in healthcare too. Now, I when I was first diagnosed with breast cancer, I was having a lumpectomy, so that was trying to remove the lump. And I was being wheeled down to surgery and this is back in 2006, so it's not like, you know, it's 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 a little bit of time ago, but I was wheeling wheel down and the, the anaesthetist was walking alongside me, which is pretty normal sometimes. Mm. And she was aging and she said to me, don't worry, I won't tell anyone because I know you want to get married. And I sort of looked at that and I said, well, A, Hippocratic Oath, you can't tell anyone anyway, but B, I don't care. Like... If they're going to want to, like, a family wants to marry me or someone wants to marry me, then they need to know this stuff. I'm not going to hide it yeah. <laughs> if I've got no breast or a lump missing. Yeah. And also, like, if they, they judge me for that, then I'm not interested in someone like that. And that was, for me, frightening that someone who's obviously really educated, an anesthetist, mm. yet had their cultural stigma and perception was they felt like they had to say that. Like so, it's awful. You're not, I mean, all that you want to make sure is that your cancer goes. I, I mean, what a... What no, an uneasy where... area to put you in when you're being rolled down to surgery. I mean, I, I mean, I don't worry. She got she <laughs> she she didn't want me saying that to anyone again. But um, the point is, it was more about the stigma that mm. even in educated people, there is still the stigma that people don't talk about cancer. If we don't yeah. talk about it, people, don't know about the signs, the symptoms, you know, all of these things, and where mm. to go for help, who, why they should go, what they should go for. So that's kind of really the conversation. Um, reducing the stigma so many yeah, areas within healthcare overall isn't there from mental health to physical health to cancer to everything there's so much stigma attached Absolutely. within all of these things that we don't speak about which we need to because the more we speak about it the, the more we can do and the quicker we can and act and the more we can share with other people Like, and yeah. I think there's that Like, I, I, I love Brini Brown and I think she talks really about vulnerability and shame and you know you have to get on the court very to play, good not just be so, so, yeah yeah it's a very it's, it's one of the 10 most watched mm. ted talks and it's you know something i love but we you have know, people with cancer who are black or asian are 41 to 48 percent more likely than those who are white to say they were only partially involved in decisions about their care and treatment so then that goes back to the healthcare professionals as we talked about what is you know what prejudices are healthcare professionals having yeah. What 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 conversations are happening there? Um, just going back to the support of mental health. There's a lack of cancer support, so people don't go to support groups if they're from BAME groups. They're unable to discuss with others. They're more likely to think they'll die from cancer. There is a lack of kind of wigs and lymphedema sleeves and kind of support from that perspective. British South Asians have higher mental health difficulties after having cancer than white people. So there's so much there. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we could just keep talking about this forever and ever, but I, I'm conscious that you had asked me some other questions. So one of the things you talked about was healthcare professionals, because if we as healthcare professionals, 
we need to look at our own prejudices and biases and our, so that we're not bringing them to our communities and our patients. Mm. And I think that's become important. And I will just share a little bit about prejudice. One's age, gender, gender identity, physical ability, religion, sexual orientation, weight, and many other characteristics are subject to bias. Unconscious biases are social stereotypes about certain groups of people that individuals from outside their own conscious awareness. And I think that's where, you know, why do we hold these conscious, unconscious biases? We're, we're hardwired. We mm. are absolutely hardwired. We, um, the reason, if we look at kind of the hunter-gatherer days, we would be traveling around in small groups, maybe like 30 to 50 group of people in a group, and we would hunt and gather food and then camp and then move on to the next place. And mm. the way that we knew whether other groups that we met was if they looked like us. So that's where it's hardwired from, you know, is to keep us safe. But obviously that doesn't make sense now in this post-race society where everyone's theoretically supposed to have the same kind of, you know, um, opportunities and healthcare and, mm. and which you, you know, shared previously. So then we have to look at um, white privilege. Because mm-hmm. this is where all these statistics are coming from, we know, with the racial disparities. Mm-hmm. So white privilege is the societal privilege that benefits white people over non-white people in some societies, particularly if they're otherwise under the same social, political, and economic circumstances. So how many people are doing the work of really looking at their own biases? Because we have to. We all have them. Yeah, we absolutely, absolutely have them. You know, It's education, isn't it? to yourself of understanding these self-inquiry processes. yeah i would say self-inquiry mm-hmm. so we do need to and that we know that there's a massive impact and the impl- you know implications to to of unconscious bias to cancer so things that we need to be aware of to prevent this unconscious because the thing is minority ethnic groups are less likely to access support they're more likely to have poorer healthcare experiences and they're more likely to have poorer health outcomes which you started this conversation with but we have to be aware of protected characteristics like the age sex race sexual dis- you know sexual orientation disability we have to think about the specific factors within different communities religion language customs and culture you know just the whole taboos around being cancer diagnosis and then we have to think from a practical perspective you and i are nutritionists we have to think mm. about diet and food culturally if we're telling someone to just eat quinoa and kale who's not used to eating that food they're not going to eat it so when I look at my some of my diabetes patients, my cancer patients, and they're being told to eat the stuff, and they're from different groups, that's not appropriate for them. We need to look at, you know, um, let's say we're talking about Afro-Caribbean people. We need to be looking at, you know, whether they're then if they're eating things like a lot more rice and peas and grilled chicken and like how, how can we change it? Plantain, like what can we do to change their diet using the foods that they normally eat? Same yeah. with Indian or Bangladeshi or Pakistani people, like if they're more likely to eat currants, how do we then change the proportion? So what would be more helpful is to ask them, because a lot of the veg, they're probably eating a lot bigger variety of vegetables anyway, mm-hmm. but how do we then, like, it's about kind of change proportion, how do we help them within their own foods? And I think that's where, particularly as nutritionists and dietitians, we need to, like, understand the cultural awareness. Absolutely. So I have a few questions which can help, you know, practical steps for healthcare professionals to, you know, really tackle the unconscious bias, is that you need to kind of reflect on yourself, your patients, your colleagues, your, you know, your, your social network. Like, how are they all treated in the workplace, in the home, in the public? Do they feel they fit in? Do they face microaggressions? Do you feel they have the same opportunities for growth and development? And that's where we need to start 
looking at things. We need to become aware of our own unconscious bias in general and what, what that might be. We need to increase our contact with varied groups. Mm-hmm. We need to counter the stereotypes. Don't make assumptions. Mm-hmm. In fact, I made an assumption the other day by mistake, and it wasn't race-related, but it was something... I think it was men related. <laughs> and, and actually then I realized, I was like, oh, you know, I can't assume that all men are like that. Uh, and it's, you know, you have to challenge yourself with these thought processes. Yeah. At the same time, we have to support our networks, our colleagues, our friends, our family, but then we have to respectfully call it out. Yeah, really well, I think that's what's really at work. Yeah. yeah. And then ensure our processes allow space to get to know the person. Um, and ask Engage relevant questions. empathy a lot more, I think, as well. It's a large part of this. Well, I think, again, Brini Brown says something really mm. beautiful that, you know, people are only scared if you're up, up close and personal. You can't be scared of them. Mm-hmm. Like when you're like, oh, yeah, people often who have racist, say racist thing, if they have a neighbor who's of a certain ethnicity, they'll be like, oh, but they're fine. They're different. You see? So people are all humans. We're all human beings. Yeah. We are all far more related than we think and we're 99% you know so we're actually going to have more differences within ethnic groups than we are between groups so you and I would have less differences than I would maybe have someone else someone else is Indian yeah so I think this is where we have to kind of remember that we're we are not we're just not that different you know everyone has hearts everyone has feelings everyone has emotions everyone's scared of things everyone you know we struggle with the same thing and that's something to remember. And I, um, I, I read a post by a, a, a black doctor who had this, and it wasn't that if she was black, it's just that she said something really beautiful. She goes, remember that people are human beings. And with one of her patients, she realized from the pile of books by his bedside that he was a professor and they ended up having a conversation and he kept teaching her new words uh, that she didn't know anything about. And she was teaching him new words that he knew nothing about because he's from a different generation and all of those things. And she said that was a really lovely way of, kind of having retaining that humanity Mm. linking this round into diet culture and racism yes yes is what i think it's important to 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 make sure we put in before we finish the podcast actually um and you've done a lot of well fantastic instagram lives and if there's we'll try and cover as much as we can in the time we've got on this podcast but Afterwards, I'd really encourage you all to go and look on the Urban Kitchens um, IGTV because she's got some fantastic Instagram lives talking about this um, that are dedicated purely to this subject. But it's all about how racism has, the diet culture has stemmed from from racism. And actually, I was reading it that it was in the 18th century, but it was even far back to, as you mentioned to me, the 17th century um and the slave trade and where it comes from and how diet culture now and white supremacy is hugely stemmed back from before colonialism and i think this is i started reading a lot about this i actually started reading a fantastic book by sabrina strings i don't know if you've read it or heard about it um it's a very good book it's an it opened my eyes more than i mean I listened to the audiobook and then I also got the book afterwards. Um, but it's called Fearing the Black Body. And it's all about the racial origins of the black phobia. Looks at the history of how race and science led to many problems that we have with weight management today. And this aesthetic view that we all have of looking slender and beautiful. Um, and it really opened my eyes a lot more to really where the diet culture is stemming from. 
And I'd love to hear your views on this, you know, how your views on what you believe as well from what you've done so many Instagram lives in this. I mean, I'm at the the more of the beginning of understanding this a lot more deeper and I've got a lot more that I need to learn about it. But it did it did really shock me that it does it does stem from slavery of all of this. Um and in the book, I just would like to read one part of a quote, if you don't mind, before I sure, ask you a question. Please. But, um, you know, the it was all about um, the within colonialism with the Europeans and how they were trying to basically prove a rationale for the ongoing of enslavement in African descent. And the Europeans actually stated that in the beginning, we thought we were just different in terms of skin colour and superficial features like hair. But later, they thought, and this is the Europeans, that they're restrained, logical and, and rational. So they have an ability, unlike the lower order of animals, to prevent ourselves from overindulging in any types of sensual appetite, whether it's sexual or oral. And this is in contrast to the context of lower races who have no control whatsoever. And that completely took me back this was in the the 18th century um as i was saying and that that paragraph hit me really hard of where this is all coming from and how it all stemmed from slavery and where we are today and how it's come along over all of these years to now what we look up to as aesthetic and beauty which is obviously wrong <laughs> because health isn't what size you are at all health is about how you feel emotionally you know how strong you feel and there's so many more dimensions and aspects to that there's still a lot for us to learn um and and this year has been a really interesting year we've had obviously the covid pandemic mm -hmm. and lockdown um and we know that baby groups are more affected by uh covid and the and then we've also had Black Lives Matter. So people are starting to understand things that maybe other people may have known before. Um, and I think I'm going to break it down, some of the things that you've said. But mm. firstly, we have to remember, we're two women speaking, by the way. Mm. Um, and we're both two cis-identifying, uh, you know, women as well. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this stuff, is, <laughs> it's, it's also down to patriarchy as well. So if, and I, I will just, I'll kind of step forward and then I'll step back. So women's <sighs> health, why are we constantly being trying to look like a, a, there's some, a, there is an aesthetic that we're constantly being sold, whether it's magazines, books, adverts. Um, and obviously you've worked in this industry, but we're mm. being sold this thing. So we don't feel good enough and we buy it. And why is this? We're not equal to men. And we are far from having parity with men. And there's at least another 100 years minimum until we uh, have the equal rights to men, we get equal pay, we have you know, all of these things. So the more that men uh, kind of suppress us um, by making us think about how we look, the less we're going to be fighting them for uh, equal rights. So just that's just one point to, to also make, because I think that's a, yeah. a different, a slightly different, but it's, a, it's part of the same thing. So... And the other thing, as you said, and you came back to what you said earlier, so the World Health Organization's definition of health is health is the state of complete physical, mental, social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. It doesn't say anything about your body shape, size, mm -hmm. what it looks like. There's nothing to do with aesthetics and how you look with your health. 
Uh-huh. Like for me personally, I am definitely carrying some extra weight right now. But I know that I'm super healthy. So I don't get sick. I don't get colds. I don't get flu. I was able to fight through cancer, like you know, mm. go through cancer quite quickly. And actually, I was diagnosed with a very slow-growing, non-aggressive form of breast cancer. Is that because of my diet and nutrition? I don't know, but it's a conversation we have all the time. Uh-huh. Um, you know. I, I my skin looks good my hair looks good you know I look younger yeah all of those mm. things I think it's something that what I think when we're trying to define health that becomes quite important uh, really kind of understanding where we're at now it's as you said again it's not how we look it's how we feel so going back a little bit about where this kind of diet culture came from it you know we had they even did this, it even goes back behind to the 12th century to Ireland. Well, even though in the UK, you know, uh, England, I'm going to talk about England particularly, not, not the whole country, and <sighs> Ireland, they had to make you know, Irish people fully Christian. They, used, and they had some sort of bias towards them then, prejudice against them. And there's always been people of African descent living in England all the way back to the Roman times. So it's not like it just started from the Europeans starting going to Africa and trying to, you know, colonize people but it is to do with the slave trade as you said mm. there needed to be a way for european people not to view them as humans mm-hmm. so once again the people that were colonized by and i'm going to talk about britain because we're british and we're here mm-hmm. they were, had to other them they had to like dehumanize them so they could sell them as things as opposed to people yeah and i think that's where it all comes from and then the idea of blackness became very unattractive. You know, in Elizabethan times, they had this whole thing about this virginal snow white queen, and that became linked to purity and this sense of moral goodness. So if you look at even our vocabulary, things like blackmail, that's racist work. We could use extortion instead, blacklisting. You know, all of these things come from that moral goodness. And even with Shakespeare, you know, and this is before the, um, the he was in the 16th century, um, I think, yeah, he was. <laughs> Just checking. I thought it was like, ah, she but his darker skinned characters were also, be, yeah, also being called levitious and vixen-like, yeah. and he really focused on fatness. Mm. So the the link, like if you think about Bottom in Midsummer Night's Dream, mm. he was fat and stupid, and they, you know, so they linked all of these things. So and in those times, only elite money, men had the money to go and see Shakespeare. So then that message started to perpetuate in this upper class white men. Mm. Um, so that's kind of really where it all came from. It, there, there's just so much. But if we fast forward a little bit more now to the kind of slave trade, um, just to understand that they basically saw um, these black bodies which are in different shapes and they started to think about the ascetic aesthetic where looks and morals are very much linked. And the movement really focused more on the control of how white women look. So that goes back to what I was saying about patriarchy. Mm. So the, and there was a whole phrase in the height of beauty should reflect the nation's moral compass as well as their racial caliber, which is kind of crazy. And that's kind of exactly what like Hitler did and his Nazi, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. And that collided with the puritanical zeal of religion, which led to the temperance movement. So with the temperance movement, it was kind of a guidepost for women, a way to explore what, you know, what it was to be American, teaching them what it was to be a bit like a polite white Christian kind of lady. Um, but with the temperance movement, it basically ended up to prohibition. So they didn't allowed to drink alcohol in America for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was spearheaded by Sylvester Graham, who was 
you know graham crackers that you can buy yes. <laughs> he invented the graham crackers but this man was very much disgusted by any form of physical stimulation whether it was sexual appetite he hated gluttony and like sex all these things so he was an advocate that your diet was linked to your morality so if you ate bland um vegetarian food you ate less and that meant you're a good christian and then kellogg's got into this so they're the people that came up with cereal granola peanut butter like this food <laughs> which you know no one needs to eat all these carbs in the morning but mm. i mean he he kellogg believed this is this is where i find it like kind of mind-blowing that if women masturbate a lot they should apply carbolic acid to the clitoris if men oh wanked a lot they should be given like an aggressive circumcision yeah and this <laughs> and you know it was all of these things that would just kind of make zero sense and then, you know, this pre process kept repeating itself with each new wave of immigration to the US. The white women had to prove themselves better than that and stay slender and consistently prove they were not African or Latin American or Indian or any of these things. And then in those days, this is in the 1930s, women's magazines started to appear, like Harper's Bazaar and, you know, all that kind of thing. And then going forward to, like, in modern days with Cosmo and Glamour and women's health. Um, and they would share and spread this message, the insistence, you know, showing that the temperance and that, you know, thinness is equated with goodness. Thinness is equated with intelligence. Thinness is equated blah, blah, blah. You know, go on, you know, back and forth. So, yeah, that that's where it all comes from. And it impacts how we as women are treated and today. And, and also, when I say treated, these magazines are still selling this. Mm. Women's Health magazine. I'm going to talk specifically about the, the magazine called Women's Health. It's all the diet culture hidden under health, healthism. Mm. And mm. it's not actual because it's always telling you how you can lose 10 pounds or like tone up or something. It's not telling you to love your body. <laughs> and social media. I want to put it in yeah, there as well. Yeah, social media. Yeah. It's a huge, huge, huge part of it as well, I think, um, with body dysmorphia and the rise of orthorexia. Um, and eating disorders and, and all of that kind of complex side that I could go down a rabbit hole with for another hour on a podcast. Exactly. There's so much to say on this topic and how really, like, let's also look at the impact of men on this too and not yeah. just you know, ethnicity and race and all those things because, you know, how often are men, what I've noticed is that men aren't talking about racism educating themselves in the same way so i asked my ex-boyfriend i you know we have a very good relationship and he is biracial so mm -hmm. i thought you know what let me ask him because he's half irish and half indian and i i was genuinely trying to understand and he said that he he said that his in his opinion that men do not get their privilege women are always discriminated against for their sex in whatever way they mm -hmm. already feel it hence they're maybe they've got more um of a a need or a want or understanding when people are discriminated against for their race because they know what it's like to be discriminated as a woman with men especially white men don't and i thought that was really interesting that so is I, really I was interesting. trying to find That's out women in people. general isn't it i think more yeah. so than men yeah yeah so i was trying to understand where this was coming from and i realized that there is in and every time i write about um, ethnicity or the discrepancy or uh, racism or health inequalities i always have some white men just going on and on at me and I'm just like it's because you don't get it you've never been discriminated against in your whole life yeah that's so true so basically we need to get men to this, this podcast <laughs> women share we it need with... to get I think you know <laughs> let's look at the covid out outcomes because yeah. I think it's very topical yeah every single country that's had a female leader 
mm-hmm. has had much more improved outcomes, had way fewer deaths. Mm-hmm. Something to say about that has had more empathy. Like, you know, whether you take Taiwan, take um, New Zealand, take you know, any country to look at the Scandinavian countries, they've all handled it in a very different way. They haven't all done the same thing either. They've all handled it incredibly differently. But they have looked at common sense. <laughs> they've actually listened mm-hmm. to the science mm-hmm. and they've taken practical steps. And they've thought about people's humanity. Yeah. So it's women that basically need to lead us, which is, I completely agree with you. And the World (laughs) Health Organization had, there was an article, um, was it in The Lancet? I can't remember, maybe. They said we should need to have a feminist agenda to help. Yeah, we do. I shall send you that paper. Yeah, can you? I'd love to read that, actually. I'll also pop that on the show notes for everyone else who wants to read that, too. I would love to talk to you so much more, but I knew this was going to happen. It was going to get to an hour and I was going to have to stop. Um, Can you let everyone know where they can find find you on social media and your website? Because you have so much to say. That's so important. I want people to listen to you and share all of your channels and your resources. So please tell everyone where they can find you. So I'm mostly active on Instagram these days, which is at the Urban Kitchen. I am sometimes on Twitter at Urban Kitchen and I have a Facebook page. Um, my website is www.theurbankitchen.co.uk. But you will see me pop up, popping up in lots of places. I work with lots of brands and lots of um, cancer charities and health organisations because I think this conversation is really important, not just for breast cancer, a risk reduction and cancer risk reduction in whole, but also talking about health inequalities because we all deserve to have health. If nothing else, we deserve health. Absolutely. And that leads me into my last, last takeaway question. What does be well mean to you? Ooh, be well. You know, when you feel vibrant and happy and you've got energy and you've got enough capacity that if things come across your way which are difficult, you have enough capacity and resilience to deal with them. That's what Be Well means to me. Love that. Thank you, Tull, so much for being a guest on Live Well, Be Well. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Live Well, Be Well. If you did enjoy this episode, please do subscribe and leave a review on whichever platform you're listening to, as well as sharing with friends and family and on social media. I always love seeing when you tag me in the post that you're listening to. And if you enjoy this week's episode, you'll love next week's episode as well. I'll make sure I leave any of the things that we discussed today in the show notes for references, as well as all the anti-racism resources which Tor and I discussed. Until next week, I hope you all live well and be well. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.